0: Um, We'll just get straight into it. We're counting down to Easter, uh, one week away from uh, Easter. Uh, For many of us, counting down to giving up Lenten fasts, giving up letting go of whatever it is that you've let go of. Um, That kind of fasting and repentance in order to place ourselves in the wilderness and recognize that Christ spent those 40 days in the wilderness, uh, that at times our lives feel like a wilderness or a desert place. We have this great hope and we have this great confidence that Easter is coming, resurrection life is coming. So we're nearly there. We're not quite there, but we're nearly there. We're counting down. We're getting closer. Uh, That makes today, of course, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, they'd be the two hardest Sundays I find to come up with a sermon. Um, The reason being, quite simply, like all pastors, you hope to kind of offer something fresh or insightful or or new kind of thing. And when you get to Palm Sunday and then rolling into Easter and, you know, there's a big surprise at the end. He rises from the dead. Everyone's like, we already know that. It's like there's not, you know, there's not a lot of kind of surprises. It's one of the most well-known stories in all of kind of Christian history. And you're trying to like, you do. I mean, honestly, if you do hear a pastor go, I've got something totally new for you at Easter that no one's ever heard in 2,000 years. Um, probably disregard that because um, the, the, the good stuff is the stuff that we've been talking about for 2,000 years rather than the new, the new stuff nobody's heard. So it makes it a little bit hard. I was chatting with Catherine Overall about this oh, four or five years ago. She goes, oh, that's all right, she said. We don't need anything new. Just tell us the same old story all over again and again. And I was like, I can tell the same old story all over again again. And so that's what we find ourselves doing as we go into Palm Sunday, as we go into Easter, telling that same old story all over again. Uh, She said, don't be pressured. That's what we need to hear, which is true. So thank you, Catherine. I appreciate that. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he puts it like this. He said, uh, your task, this is speaking to pastors. He said, your task is to keep telling the basic story, insisting on the priority of God. Um, speaking biblical words of command and promise and invitation. So we're going to tell the basic story. We're going to insist on the priority of God, and hopefully there's some command and some promise and some invitation in that for you this morning. So let us turn to a very familiar story uh, up on the uh, screen. It's the week before Passover. Everyone is making their way to uh, Jerusalem. I think we're on the next slide, Ken. Yep. The week before Passover. Everyone's making their way to Jerusalem. Uh, Passover is a pilgrim, a pilgrimage festival. So uh, for those that live outside of Jerusalem, there was a great hope. Uh, not necessarily every year, but a, a few times in your lifetime and the further away that you live from Jerusalem. Like if you lived in Tarsus, like where Jonah was trying to get to, maybe once in your lifetime you'd hope to get to Jerusalem. If you lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem, you traveled into Jerusalem every year. So it does really depend on where you live. But uh, Passover was a pilgrimage festival where you would travel to Jerusalem to be in the holy city, to be be in the temple, to celebrate the Exodus, to celebrate God delivering Israel from the slavery of Egypt. So people are making their way to the holy city. It's a celebration of being set free from slavery, of course, the the bondage of Egypt and passing out of Egypt into the promised land. But in the first century, there's more than that going on as well. Uh, There's a celebration of God having once set us free from slavery, as well as a subversive prayer and hope and anticipation that God could set us free once again from slavery. That we could be delivered from the oppression of the Roman Empire. So there's there's two things going on. There's memory and hope happening at the same time. Celebration and hope happening at the same time. Could God do what God has done once again for Israel? That we could be free from the oppression of the Roman Empire in the here and now. Uh, this, of course, is a concern for Rome. Rome's not naive to the murmurs, the whispers, the the underlying atmosphere that Israel would well and truly like Rome to get out of there and have their land back and all those kinds of things. So it's a political concern to uh, Rome. They know that Israel would prefer their demise than their dominance. It's pretty kind of straightforward like that. So with this in mind, we have Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman prefect in charge of uh, Judea, traveling down to Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, Pontius Pilate lives in a a palace that's been built in Caesarea up on the... Coast up the top there. Uh, Herod is the client king that lives in Jerusalem. A client king is somebody that is basically applied to the Roman government to be appointed on behalf of the Roman government as the king and to rule on behalf of the Roman Empire. So he's an he's a Jewish person that has, you know, paid his way into, into a place of prominence. Pilate, though, is the Roman prefect in charge of everything. And he's kinda he's gonna, you know, his rank is gonna trump this weekend and he's gonna travel down to be present in Jerusalem as well uh, doesn't travel their office uh, often him and uh, him and Herod don't get on well but uh, he's going to be there he's going to pull rank make his way to Jerusalem he has his entourage and he'll, he'll be heading down the coast basically to Joppa uh, where we've been in Jonah the last few weeks basically to Joppa where Jonah was going to escape to Tarshish he'll travel down to Joppa then inland through uh, uh, Lydar and then across the Emmaus and that's the Emmaus road that goes from Mayus to Jerusalem, he'll travel with his entourage and make his way to Jerusalem. Uh, within Pontius Pilate's entourage, let us imagine this morning another character. A Roman tribune, Pilate's senior military commander. Let's call him Marcellus Galileo. Uh, ultimately, it's, Marcellus's, uh, that it's Marcellus that Pilate entrusts with the security detail of the command. Marcellus is in charge of the troops. Marcellus is in charge of safety. Uh, Marcellus has been assigned to bring Pilate safely to uh, Jerusalem uh, to keep the peace. Uh, Marcellus is the guy that will enforce the peace. He'll make sure that the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana of Rome prevails. Uh, The Pax Romana is the peace of Rome enforced by the sword. Um, So it's not maybe what you'd call a real peace. Like it's the peace where everyone does the right thing and if you don't you get your head chopped off. So Iran chooses to be peaceful. But uh, you could maybe hint at that not being a real peace. But uh, that's Marcellus' job to do that. That said, he's even-tempered. He, he's, he's as fair as one can be when you're handing out crucifixions. So he's a, he's a good guy. He's as fair as he can be when you're handing out crucifixions. He doesn't hand out crucifixions willy-nilly. He just, he just The right people will be appointed to die a ghastly death upon the cross. So you know that's his role. It's a different time. Uh, his main concerns are... Bandits that live in the hills, uh, pirates that raid the coast. If you're familiar with uh, any of the Asterix and Obelix con- uh, comics, you've got the pirates that are raiding. They're one of his primary uh, concerns, uh, you know. And then there's these zealots called the Sakurai or the Sikurai They're, they're a concern as well. They're the dagger wielders. Uh, these Sicari, they're a part of a Jewish sect uh, known as the Zealots, and they had these. Uh, they had these curved. Uh, they had these curved daggers that they'd keep within their cloaks. And in the busy streets, and the crowded streets, as people are gathering for festivals, they would just kind of whip out the, the little dagger and bang, bang, bang a few times, and then slip it away. And then kind of in the, the, you know, the crowd's bumping shoulders, they would just make their way off to the side and escape. These assassins who would uh, kill Roman officials or Roman sympathizers. So he's got these, Marcellus has these concerns. These zealots, he's got the pirates, he's got bandits. These are all the sorts of things to keep an eye on. Uh, He's not a cruel man, at least not by the standards of the time. He's a talented general. He has a reputation as an honorable and just military leader. His men love him, and the Jewish community kind of respects him. I mean, don't get me wrong, though. They'd prefer he was gone, but uh, they kind of respect him. Uh, he's even tempered and as fair as one can be. He, uh, in Caesarea, where he lives normally, he's even got some Jewish friends. He's very close to a fisher family that run a catch to cook stall near the harbour. He's partial to spicy fish cakes and octopus and tabouli salad that they sell. Uh, They're traveling to Jerusalem as well for Passover. Perhaps they're ahead of him. Perhaps they're behind him. But he's he's agreed to keep his eye out for them and make sure that they're safe as well. For Marcellus, the first stage of the assignment has gone off without a hitch. The trip from Caesarea to Jerusalem. His scouts scoured the roads to the uh, left into the hills and most of the bandits kept away. Uh, better news even than that, though, they managed to catch the nefarious Barabbas and arrest him. He'd been on a most wanted list for a long time. The western roads were clear. Arriving in Jerusalem on the Jewish Sabbath had proved fortunate. Most Jews were resting, and when Pilate arrived in Jerusalem, all was calm. Respended in his regalia, demonstrative on his war horse at the head of more than 1,200 troops, the protest, the jeering, the reaction had been to a minimal. Word would spread, though, the might of the Roman Empire had arrived. Cavalry, foot soldiers, swords and shields, banners uncoiled in the breeze, golden eagles lifted high, marching feet and creaking leather, snorting horses, the beating of drums and of spears against shields. The dust of the road would swirl high in the wind. Despite the small crowds, everyone would know that Pontius Pilate had arrived in Jerusalem. Tomorrow, Sunday... Marcellus decided he would take a patrol and explore the eastern roads towards Bethany. Ensure that all was well on the eastern side of Jerusalem, even as it had been on the west. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 10. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. Donkey, the foal of a donkey, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people indeed said, what are you doing? Uh, untying the donkey. They answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. At present, Marcellus saw no need to push his horse through to the front of the crowd and flex any sort of military muscle. Certainly he had been surprised, alarmed even, to notice dust rising and to hear the shouts of the crowd as they uh, exited Jerusalem on their eastbound morning patrol. But despite their enthusiasm, the, the crowd seemed orderly, more joyous and celebratory than rebellious or revolutionary. In many ways, thought Marcellus, everything unfolding here was the antithesis of Pilate's procession only a day before. This ragbag outfit offered little to compare to the power, the glory, and the might of the Roman Empire. Pilate rode a mighty warhorse, impressive in his military regalia. This Jesus sat somewhat awkwardly, side-saddle, on a peace donkey far too small for him. Pilate rode proudly at the head of more than 1,200 troops, the might and strength of Rome behind him. This Jesus, he, and he did seem humble, had only 12 with him, and they looked like something of a motley crew. Still though, thought Marcellus, this Jesus seemed to be experiencing a warm welcome. and Neither Pilate or Herod would be happy to hear talk of an alternative kingdom. A long extinct king, the long extinct kingdom of David rearing its head again. Likely this was the kind of thing worth nipping in the bud sooner rather than later. Sitting beside his horse, Marcellus was about to turn and ride back to Jerusalem. Strangely, though, that very moment, Jesus seemed to glance in his direction and their eyes locked. There appeared to be a depth and a peace to this man that was unsettling, something regal about him, even. Could a man on a donkey really be a king? Marcellus wondered if they would ever meet.
1: So we find ourselves
0: on Palm Sunday and we find ourselves asking a similar question. Could a man on a donkey really be a king? This is the kind of question that we're invited to ponder as we enter into Holy Week, as we get closer to Easter. Could the man that comes on a peace donkey really be a king? Let alone the king of kings, the lord of lords. Uh, Surely the guy that comes... Striding into the city on a war horse with an entourage is more likely to be the king. The Jewish crowd seemed to think so, but the Jewish leaders weren't so convinced. Let alone us as modern secular people trying to figure, can a can a guy on a donkey and really be the king? Jew- Jewish leaders weren't looking for a carpenter on a donkey. That wasn't their. Uh, that wasn't their. You know, they were to put together a a. You know. The kind of qualities that we're looking in a would-be messiah, a carpenter who rides donkey and leads mighty force of 12 men, uh, probably wasn't the the kind of CV or the the kind of expression of interest that they were looking for. Uh, They were looking for someone with power, authority, influence, means, control, the ability essentially to take over. Because if you're going to rule the world, you've got to have power and authority and control and the means to manipulate people to your end. In the meantime, when you're under the pump, these Jewish leaders had a number of ideas of kind of what to do while you wait, what to do while you, you know, waiting for this Messiah to show up. And there were four different sects at the time, essentially four different perspectives on how do we go about living while we wait for Messiah. There were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about religious pietism, you could say. They were all about a doubling down on faithfulness to Torah and they made a they made a whole bunch more extra rules extra laws to add to the law of Moses to make sure like some of them were a little bit oh if you do this are you breaking the law of Moses oh, I don't know or let's make about 10 other laws to make sure that if you don't break those 10 you won't certainly make you know you certainly won't break the law of Moses so they were they were doubling down on religious piety, and we'll, we'll all earn God's favor by being kind of more faithful than any, anyone's ever been faithful now, uh, the Sadducees were different, a little bit different. Uh, one of the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. And so with that in mind, kind of for the Sadducees, all that mattered was the here and now of this moment. And in light of that, the Sadducees were way more inclined to look for accommodation. Uh, they, were, they were the politically savvy who would kind of sidle up alongside Rome. And let's see if we can work out some sort of compromise, some sort of way of we can all get along and make the best of a bad situation. Then you had the Essenes. So you got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, you got this sect called the Essenes. And uh, they were about, I guess what you call mystical escapism. Um, where the Essenes didn't see an afterlife all that mattered, uh, sorry, where the Sadducees didn't see an afterlife, all that mattered was the material here and now, the Essenes didn't see the material here and now as mattering, they were more about a mystical experience and we'll escape our bodies and we'll go to kind of the spiritual realm and that really is what matters so they were were, uh, ascetic people who kind of, they took vows of poverty and they'd fast lots and they didn't really want to have anything to do with the general public or anything to do with the material world, another way of being. Let's just have a spiritual perspective on everything and ignore what's going on. Then you had the Zealots. The Zealots are the fourth sect. Uh, the Zealots were the ones that recognised that basically it's through violence is the only way that we're going to get ahead. Violent overthrow. Uh, they'll work to accumulate power and control, to kill the right people, assassinate the right people, move the right people into the political frame, and through force, through might, through assassination, through murder, You'd climb your way to the top and take things over. Then we have a man on a donkey. Lowly and humble. Walking a path that leads to death and yet somehow life. No one was thinking that that might be the way. No the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the sins, the zealots they weren't getting together and debating well, what about a whole nother way of laying down our lives in order that we might find life that wasn't like you know that wasn't on the radar as a good fifth option but there's this guy called Jesus and he's been teaching things Matthew 10 verse 38 he says, "If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me you're not worthy of being mine. if you cling to your life you will lose it but if you give up your life for me you will." find it that's back to front that's upside down that's all that's all around the wrong way unless you're willing to let go of your religious pietism the idea that spiritual disciplines might be about earning credit rather than inclining one's ear unless you're going to let go of that you're not going to find the life i'm calling you to you can double down with your religion and hold on tight but you won't find the freedom in the life i'm calling you to Unless you're going to let go of your secular accommodation, the idea of having your cake and eating it, the idea of serving God and mammon, the Sadducees were a little bit like that. Well, unless you let go of that, you're not going to find the life you're, going to, you're looking for. You can cling tightly to that, but you won't find the life that you're looking for. Unless you're going to let go of mystical escapism. The idea that all that matters is a visible and beyond or whatever kind of thing. Well, you can cling tightly to that, but it'll suffocate you and you won't actually find the life that you suppose you're looking for. I'm calling you to die to that, to let go of that. Don't hold on tightly to that. If you cling too tightly, it'll, it'll slip through your fingers. Like holding on to sand. If you cling too tightly to dry sand, it slips through your fingers. Don't do that. Unless you're willing to let go of your disposition towards violence as the answer as the solution. You're not going to find the life that I've called you to. I'm calling you to take up your cross, to lay down your life, and in doing so, find life. The tighter that you cling to your modes of being, your philosophies, your ideologies, you can cling tightly to them, but you watch it all crumble on you. Essentially, we let go of your ideas and ideologies and walk in step with Jesus. It's back to front and current intuitive and upside down and all around the wrong way. But you all know the Easter story. <laughs> In the end, death leads to life, but along the way, death leads to life as well. We know that the tighter we cling to things, the more likely are they they are to slip through your fingers. Tighter that a parent clings to a child, you might know as the parent that's clung tightly, or the child that's been clung tightly to. The tighter that they hold on the more that somehow this kid seems to slip through the fingers and want to escape and be away hold them loosely discover that there's connection and relationship friends and families and love Find it the, higher, the tighter that you hold on to it the less it is bringing what you thought it would bring and actually distorting to become something else clinging too tightly to the old rather than embracing the new Cling too tightly to it and you discover that the old thing kind of dies and doesn't give the life it should. You've got to learn to let go. Holding on to that previous season rather than embracing the new or the next. My kids still I don't know why. they must think I'm younger than I am. We we're at the uh, skate park yesterday. They didn't ask me to skate, which was good. they've already figured that out. Uh, I've landed a clip, kick flip or two for them, and that was enough to keep them impressed. Uh, but there's these young guys um, practicing softball and um, they've got this um, automatic softball launcher and it's launching the softball, I don't know, 150 miles an hour it looked like kind of thing and these young 20 year old guys were all like hitting every third one kind of stuff and my boys, they had the uh, good grace, the the delightful naivety to say Dad, Dad, you'd be better than that, eh? (laughs) Um, No, like, no, I haven't hit a softball since high school and why would it? no, but it's like, you know Kids look, at, you know, kids look at you at you know, better than what you are. But unless you can let go of... You know, we, we can sometimes cling so tightly to a previous season in life without embracing the actual season that we're in. You're not 20 anymore. You know, don't drop in off the roof onto the ramp. It won't go well for you. Um, you know, holding so tightly to yesterday rather than embracing today or the season that we're in, it, it doesn't go well. It doesn't lead to the holy, whole and wholesome life that we're looking for we kind of know where this is all going with Easter but today's Palm Sunday and this is all up in the air these are all just questions to be posed and things to consider could it be that letting go of violence and instead of laying down our lives could somehow lead to fullness of life well we don't know the answer yet but it's all up in the air somehow letting go of our religious pietism that somehow we double down and read the Bible all of it today that God will be impressed and good things will happen this week oh, maybe it will we don't know it's all up in the air at the moment it's Palm Sunday Again, for, it's hard for a preacher. You all know where it's heading. The, the, the truth, the, the, what we're going to learn is no. Lay down your life. It's all ambiguous at the moment. though. There's a crowd shouting Hosanna in the highest today. But we've still got betrayal and death and despair ahead of us. We've still got Thursday and Friday and Saturday. We've got Judas and the cross and the tomb. The crowd's convinced at the moment, but the crowd is fickle. And we still have to see how the rest of the week is going to unfold. Marcellus is thinking it through, though. He has a sense of something happening beyond the obvious. Marcellus has a sense that there's something happening beyond the obvious. The war horse of Pilate, the peace donkey of Jesus... What happens when a peace donkey and a war horse face off? Jesus has declared himself to be the one who sets the prisoners free. But as is the Passover custom, it is Pilate who is empowered to release the prisoners. And he'll release Barabbas. Who is it that really has the power in life to bring freedom? Jesus loves his disciples, faithful even unto death on a cross. Herod and Pilate have been enemies, but... They'll take a life and become friends. What does love look like laying down one's life or forming coalitions of violence? The Roman Empire will flex its ultimate muscle and bring the power to death as it wills. But who really has power over death? Is it the Roman Empire or is there another? We have ultimate evil personified in the Roman Empire in a standoff in the ultimate love of Christ. We ask ourselves on Palm Sunday as we head into Easter, can love really conquer all things? They say that love conquers all things. Can love really conquer all things? Marcellus and Jesus did meet. Pilate, determined to keep the peace, is instructed Marcellus to follow up on any lead on this Jesus character that presented itself and arrest him if possible. It would mean they could lock him away till Passover was finished and keep the peace intact. The chief priests, angry that Jesus had flipped tables in the temple, set out to have Jesus killed. They'd managed to find a willing informer. They had information that Rome might be interested in. The long and the short of it, come Thursday, Marcellus found himself hiding in the shadows of a garden. In a garden, someone was praying, crying out. Others were sleeping. It was hard to tell who was who. The group was talking, and then he spotted the sign. The informer kissed Jesus on the cheek. Quickly signaling his men, they stepped forward from the shadows and surrounded Jesus. Suddenly a sword flashed. A soldier cried out and there was a bloody air on the ground. Marcellus and his men went to draw their swords, but Jesus spoke quickly, his eyes fixed on Marcellus. Peace, be still. And for some reason, Marcellus listened. This Jesus spoke as one with authority. Jesus now picked up the bloody air. He held it against the side of the soldier's head muttering something quietly a prayer it seemed the air appeared to reattach itself it was not something that marcellus was ever able to explain he only half believed but he believed at the command of Pilate, marcellus had jesus flogged and a crown of thorns placed upon his head not at all squeamish nevertheless he felt sick with the crowd screaming and Pilate nodding marcellus dumbfounded bound Jesus and released Barabbas. It made no sense at all. At the place of the skull, Golgotha, Marcellus oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. Criminal on either side, he was sure that Jesus was innocent, but what option did he have in the face of the Roman Empire? Orders were orders. This Jesus had supposed himself to be the son of God. Everyone knew that the Caesar was the son of God. His men cast lots for the garments. The winner handed them over. Here, boss, thought you should have them. Jesus upon the cross said he was thirsty. He was offered a sponge to drink from. Is Jesus really the one with living water? Or is he just the guy hanging on a cross who was thirsty? Then Jesus breathed his last. The mother wept, the temple curtain tore in two. the earth, shook, tombs broke open. Marcellus couldn't help himself. Surely this was the Son of God, he declared. He had never felt so thirsty. Let's stand together this morning. Palm Sunday and these are the kinds of questions that are up in the air at the moment. Let me pray for you as we close. As you enter Holy Week know that this is a week of contrast for certainly everything is up in the air. A war horse stands over a peace donkey, a Caesar over a saviour. Darkness threatens the light. Know, though, that Jesus is the life giver, the pain bearer, the world healer, and that resurrection is right around the corner. Know that you go in grace and the peace of God, even when it looks like everything is stacked against you. This week, don't be afraid to question everything, knowing that the Lord will keep you. May Christ go behind you to encourage you, beside you to befriend you, above you to watch over you, beneath you to lift you up, within you to bring faith, hope, love and life and always before you to show the way in Jesus.